0: Chapter Eight, A World to Come. It was by chance Johnny saw the lights, Ruby coach trundling slowly down Orange Street, heading for Milton and a little country air. The bright sun glittered on the gold eye, rising on the coach door, on the back sheen of the strong horses. He half wanted to stop the coach. Don't you go to Milton, Miss Light. They are lying in wait for you out there. He could not bear to think of her tossed about by rough men ridden on a rail. He could see her profile through the window. Scylla Scylla sat facing her. Azana, as befitted her higher station in the household, sat next to Miss Light. Only Azana was staring about, observing the lower classes milling about in the street. She looked straight at Johnny and he at her. Neither gave any sign of recognition. It was not by chance Johnny sat next to that, next saw that Ruby coach. Late in August, word was spread through Boston that Merchant Light had got it or was going to get it out in Milton. If driven from their country house, there was but one safe refuge for them behind the British lines in Boston. Toward evening, Johnny began to hang about the gate. The farm carts, carrying food and fuel to Boston, were still coming in over the mudflats connecting the town with the mainland. These, the British guard at the gate, nearly 200 men were kept stationed there day and night, let pass, but when night really fell, the gates were closed and most of the soldiers returned to their barracks. There were a few sentries on duty and a handful of men with a corporal in the guardhouse. Johnny settled down to wait. He had been dozing, but woke quickly, hearing the sentries yell and the corporal commanding the gates to be opened. Then, coming closer through the still summer night, the clatter of hoofs, the rumble of a coach, was sickening, hair-raising howl the howling of a human wolf pack. The corporal had not had time to get his tunic on, but he recognized the situation. Another of his majesty's loyal supporters fleeing to Boston with the mob at his heels. Torches only, he was crying to his men. No muskets, death to any man who fires. The unarmed soldiers ran out to meet the coach with great flaring torches in their hands. The mob had already stopped and was drifting back from whence it came. Through the canopy of shaking orange light and through the smell of burning pitch black horses whitened with lather and dragging a heavy ruby coach slowly crawled to the safety of the gates. The gates shut behind them. The coach seemed disabled. The horses were almost spent. A torch flared up on the coachman's face. It was twisted with fear. Mr. Light yourself, sir, the young Corporal was saying as he opened the door of the coach. Let me assist you, sir. You've lost a wheel off your coach. Please come into the guardhouse while you wait for another vehicle. Mr. Light, helped by the corporal, but even more by Miss Lavinia, did crawl from the coach. He tried to smile, but his lips drew back from long yellow teeth. Johnny had seen the identical expression of the face of a dead woodchuck. He was a desperately sick man. Lavinia's face showed no fear, only concern over her father's condition. Now she was telling the corporal that a doctor must be fetched, and she wanted Dr. Warren. I know he's a rebel, but do get him for me. He's the best doctor we have in town, and Papa, Papa must have the best. Her father safely inside the guardhouse, Miss Lavinia came into the street a moment, gazing blankly at the disabled coach and at the men carrying from it into the guardhouse, such of their most precious possessions as they had time to rescue from Milton. For the first time, Johnny saw Scylla. Had, she had been sitting on the box with the coachman. Now she went to Miss Light. Somehow, she said, the silver got left behind. The silver? Miss Light did not seem to be able to take in anything but her father's sickness. You told me to pack it up, but just as I had begun, we heard the mob coming and then Mr. Light had a fit. Oh, yes, I remember all the silver. Well, she was standing there in the street, watching for the sight of Dr. Warren's chase. Zana, very good and quiet, was snuggled close to her, her hand in that of her patroness. Oh, never mind, child, she said with absent-minded kindness. At least we are safe, and if only Papa is well and... I'm going back to Milton, Miss, to get that silver before the riffraffs steal it. Most like they most like they have it already. Dr. Warren's chase was drying up beside the guardhouse. He was getting out. Miss Lavinia had no more thought of silver. Johnny went up to Scylla. Look, Scylla, he said, I'm here. It was so mixed up at the end. The girl seemed to be trying to explain her air more to herself than to Johnny. Mr. Light turned purple and fell. The mob was getting closer. It came earlier than Miss Bessie warned us. Miss Bessie? Yes, she found out some way in the village. Johnny, like the old woman, all the better that in the end she had been unable to see a considerate master whom she had served for 30 years, a young woman whom she had taken care of since she was a baby humiliated, tossed about, torn by a mob. Sam Adams might respect her the less for this weakness. Johnny respected her the more. Johnny, I've got to get back to Milton. I'm going to save that silver, it was my fault. But Miss Lavinia didn't seem to care. She didn't scold you. If she had, I wouldn't go. She thinks it's been stolen already. No. After smashing the gates and some windows, the mob left the house to chase us. We didn't dare leave by the front drive. We started out through the haying fields, but they heard us and caught up, and we were getting away all right until just on the neck a wheel came off the coach. It was terrible. I've got to go back, though, and now. I'll go with you, but it looks like we'll need a horse and chase. It's seven miles Dr. Warren was standing on the guardhouse steps, telling Miss Light that her father must be allowed to finish the night out in the bed the soldiers had made up for him. He was not to be moved, and never again must he be so upset over anything. Anything. From now on, as long as he lived, as as she loved him, he was never going to be angered or worried. The handsome girl was nodding, promising these impossible things, she went back to her father, still clutching Izana by the hand, and Johnny went to the doctor. Obviously, Dr. Warren did not want to lend his horse and chase. He did not care what happened to the light silver, but he was a generous man. He let Johnny have his rig and also wrote him a pass which would pre- prevent any molestation from the Whig mobs and told Scylla to get a similar pass from the British soldiers. Then they would be safe from either side. So at last the gates once more swung slowly, heavily in. Beyond was darkness and a dreary waste of land and sea. The doctor's little rabbit-eared mare flung herself forward. It would not take such a fast pacer long to get to Milton. Two. Although once or twice the light chase slurred as it caught in great ruts made by the disabled light coach, there was no other sign of late violence. The mob was utterly gone. It was not until they reached Roxbury that they knew the time. The village clock struck two. Thus far, they had not met one single human being. But here were a few turbulent fellows hanging about at in an inn door, and in Milton itself they were signalled to stop by a group whose faces they never did see. But Doctor Warren's chase and horse were recognized. Go ahead, Warren. Good luck, Warren. They went up the steep road for Milton. It was here Mr. Light had his country seat. Then Johnny got out, struck Tinder, and lighted the lantern he had found in the chase. He stood by the entrance gates. Yes, Scylla was right. They had smashed the arms carved upon the gates. The poor people of Milton had had enough of that rising eye. Johnny wasn't sure, but he had as well. He walked ahead and Scylla drove the horse. Thus half seen and in the dark, things did not look too bad. Scylla had a key to the back door which showed hatchet marks, but it was not broken down. They went into the dining room, and from the lantern, Scylla lit the candles and the two candelabra on the table. Look that one up. Uh, C-A-N-D-E-L-A-B-R-A on the table. Twenty candles in all, and the room filled with light. Fear had overcome the lights as they had sat down to eat. Bread broken and never eaten. The roast of beef with the Yorkshire pudding sticking in the cold gravy. A bowl of salad was still fresh. Wine in the slender goblets. Already the great house did not seem to have been abandoned for a few hours, but for years. It was as if a witchcraft had been worked upon it. Johnny saw that Scylla had started to get the silver together. Where's Miss Bessie? She left earlier than we did, in a farm cart. But, you know, she'll be all right. Scylla went to work packing the silver and she built up a little fire on the kitchen hearth so that she might have hot water to wash the dishes. Neat by nature, she would leave the house tidy. Johnny took the lantern he had left on the kitchen table and walked through the silent house. He could see that every window in the lower floor had been broken, but no one had entered. He went upstairs. Lavinia's room and Lavinia's room and strewed about things it he had never seen before. Stays, kerchiefs, patch pockets, boxes, ribbons, fripperies. It smelled faintly of lavender. He went to Mr. Light's room. The great four-poster soared to the ceiling. A damask dressing ground and Mr. Light's best wig on a wig rest. Off the big chamber and one step down was a smaller room designed as a dressing room. Mr. Light seemingly had used this as an office. Here was his desk and above it a painting of his favorite ship, the Unicorn. And here, judging by the tipped over chair and the rumpled rugs, Mr. Light had had his all but fatal fit. It caught him as he had been packing packing his more important papers, papers he wished no one to see. Johnny picked up what looked like a leather-bound book. It had been hollowed out, turned into a box. In a bookcase, no one would suspect it. He glanced at the papers within. Every one of them he saw, Sam Adams would be thankful to get. These he put in his pocket. Other books were scattered on the floor. Johnny picked up a heavy Bible, hoping that this, too, would prove to be a box. He put it on the desk and opened it. There were sheets of paper between the Old and New Testaments. Here a man might write his genealogy. So the first Jonathan Light had been born in Kent in 16-something, and he had married a Matilda something, had come to Boston and had four sons and three daughters. They, all seven, had sons and daughters and so on. Now he was coming to the generation in which he might expect to find his own mother. Here, indeed, was Merchant Light himself and his daughter, Lavinia, the two sons who had drowned at Guadalupe, the girls dead in infancy. He even found that Aunt Bert, who had stayed on at Boston with her own servant, he found one Lavinia Light after another. One married in Endicott and one in Otis. Neither was the right age for his mother. Scratched out in such a way he had at first thought it was a mere decoration on the elaborately written page, there was another name. It was Lavinia Light. He held the lantern closer. Born 1740, married to Dr. Charles Latour, both of whom had died of plague in Marseille, shortly before his own birth. His mother had told him he had been born in France and that his father had died before his own birth. But why Dr. Charles Latour? And why had his mother's name been scratched off the family record? But nevertheless, this was the spot, the very spot where he might hang his own few meager leaves to the light tree. Although in his daydreaming, he had often pictured himself a nephew, grandnephew, or even a grandson of Merchant Light, he had never once believed the relationship was that close. Now he checked over the generations. His grandfather, Roger Light, dead now for 20 years and builder of this very house, had been the younger brother of Jonathan Light. Johnny himself was the merchant's grandnephew. He took his knife from his pocket and cut the pages from the family Bible. Something they, something, Sometime they might be of use to him. Scylla was calling him. She wanted him to help her carry the heavy boxes and hampers of silver to the chase. On the sideboard as yet unpacked stood the four standing cups of the lights. Which one is yours, Johnny? He looked them over carefully. Only a silversmith could have told them apart. The base of one had been ever so little bent and straightened again. This is my cup. Take it now. No. He set it down and turned restlessly to Scylla. He could not say to anyone what threw his mind, not to Scylla, not even to himself. He acted and spoke blindly. It's no good to me. We've We've moved on to other things. But it isn't stealing to take back what Mr. Light stole from you. I don't want it. What? No, I'm better off without it. I want nothing of them. Neither their blood nor their silver. I'll carry that hamper for you, Sill. Mr. Light can have the old cup. But your mother? She didn't like it either. He came back when he had left the hamper and stopped by the kitchen hearth. Scylla had brought up a little fire faggots to heat water. He put his two hands on the mantelpiece and his forehead on his hands. He stood like that for a long time. His grandfather had built this great house. His mother had played on the floor of this kitchen. Was it here his father had come? His father, the French doctor, Dr. Latour, the Bible had it. Here was mystery surely. Why not Dr. Tremaine? And why had the Bible said that both he and Lavinia died of the plague in Marseille, 1758, three months before he himself had been born? Does it matter? Does it or doesn't it? No. He answered his own question aloud and took from his pocket the heavy pages he had cut from the Bible, all written over with the names of his genealogy. He could not think now why he had ever cut them out. Slowly, tearing each sheet to ribbons, he fed them to the fire upon the hearth. Then Silo was asking him to close and fasten all the heavy shutters through the house. This would protect the interior a little, in spite of the broken window panes. His footsteps echoed through the vast, silent reaches of the house. One after another, the heavy shutters slammed to and he bolted them a protest of unused hinges and then a bang, and he went on to the next. The echo of his own footsteps. My grandfather built this house. My mother knew it and loved it. My father dead before ever I was born. Now, for as long as it stood, this would be a haunted house. He felt the ghosts waiting in darkness until he and Scylla were gone before they stepped forth to take possession. Merchant Light, soon enough he too would be back here. Miss Lavinia, she might live to be a hundred, but the time would come when, wilt she or not, she must return to this house, this haunted house with its thin wreath of wraiths and his mothers among them. He had seen her face, heard her voice so clearly that night that he had lain by her grave on Copse Hill. He thought of her with love and a tender understanding, an understanding he had been too young to give when she had died. But he left the haunted chambers, echoing halls, and went gladly to the kitchen where Scylla was. For the dead should not look at the living, nor the living too long upon the dead. Scylla, unaware of his emotions, looked about her with satisfaction. She had finished her work. Now it will be in good order when the lights come back. Johnny felt sad. He went to her and put his arms around her and his thin cheek against his hair, her hair. Scylla, they won't ever come back. Never? No. This is the end. The end of one thing. The beginning of something else. They won't come back because there's going to be a war, a civil war, and we'll win. First, folk like them get routed out of Milton, then out of Boston, and the cards are going to be reshuffled, dealt again. Shall I shutter the kitchen too? Yes. Each time the shutter groaned, protested, and then came to with a bang, it seemed to say, this is the end, and the words echoed through the house, this is the end. This is the end. My mother played on the floor of this kitchen. My grandfather was but a young man when he built this house, and I, a grandson, have better right to it's doubtless than an elder brother. The house was still filled with midnight and ghosts, but as they closed and locked the heavy kitchen door behind them, they saw it was close upon dawn. It's like a funeral, Scylla whispered, only worse. She knew that much of what he had been feeling, Scylla had also felt. Along down the old country road, marching through the meager half-light of the new day, came a company of minutemen up and out early, drilling for coming battles before it was yet the hour to get their chores. Left, right, left, right, left. They did not march too well. A boy no bigger than Dusty Miller had put a fife to his lips and was trying to blow it. He made awkward little tootles. The men marched on past the defa- defaced gates of the Light's country seat, never turning to look at them or Doctor Warren's chase with Scylla and Johnny under the hood. Oh God, help them! Thought Johnny. They haven't seen those British troops in Boston. I have. They haven't seen the gold lace on the generals, those muskets all so alike, and everyone is and everyone has a bayonet. They haven't seen. The chase overtook and passed the marching farmers.